0: Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the Center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. Today's Supreme Court justices are arguably all household names, but have you heard of Justices John Jay, James Wilson, or Bushrod Washington? On today's episode, a panel of historians and biographers will help us get to know some of America's earliest justices and their impact on American history. Gerard Magliocca is the Samuel R. Rosen professor at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinley School of Law and author of Washington's Heir, The Life of Justice Bushrod Washington. Mava Marcus is a research professor of law and director of the Institute of Constitutional Studies at George Washington University Law School. And Walter Starr is the author of John Jay, Founding Father, as well as Salmon P. Chase, Lincoln's vital rival. Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. This conversation was streamed live on April 19th, 2022. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started.
1: Hello, friends. Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to tonight's convening of America's Town Hall. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution. Thank you so much for joining us, Uh, Gerard, Maba, and Walter. If I may, Gerard, let us begin with you. Why did you choose to write about Justice Bushrod Washington, and why should our NCC friends be interested in him? Well,
2: thanks, uh, Jeff, for inviting me, and it's wonderful to be here with such a great panel. I decided to write about Bushrod Washington for a couple of reasons. First, no one had written a book about him before, so that was a challenge. Uh, Secondly, he was George Washington's nephew, and so this is a way of understanding George Washington that is different from other approaches you could take to him. Third is, he was on the Supreme Court at a pivotal juncture for 30 years alongside John Marshall and had a very close relationship with John Marshall that predated their time on the court. And it was a way of approaching the Marshall court from a different vantage point. And in doing so, I came to believe that Washington was really a pivotal partner for John Marshall and that we should understand what the court did in those years as being largely the product of a team that is John Marshall and Bushrod Washington, and that Washington really played an important role in kind of providing support for what Marshall was trying to do in building up the court as an institution. So Bushrod is uh, interesting in his own right. He's interesting because of the people he was close to. And he's also interesting because of some of the opinions that he wrote as a judge.
1: Wonderful. Thanks for that great introduction. And we will dig into both his opinions, his relationship with Marshall, and so much more during our discussion. Walter Starr, same question to you. Uh, John Jay is better known perhaps than Bushrod Washington as a diplomat and a founding father, but why did you choose to write about John Jay and, and why should our friends uh, be interested in him?
3: Well, I first, I was a practicing lawyer for a couple decades and I was living and working in Hong Kong when it kind of hit me that I I wanted to write a book and then I fished around for a subject. Um, I was originally thinking about Governor Morris, another founding father, But I thought, well, let's find the biographies of his friends and Alexander Hamilton, Robert Livingston, John Jay. And I was shocked to learn that the most recent biography of John Jay was from the 30s. And I bought a used copy um, and read it and it wasn't that good. I thought, well, God, even I could do better than this. So I started you know, researching and writing. I mean, Jay has this amazing career in state, federal, and international. I mean, most people today kind of know him for his role in writing the Federalist Papers or his role on the as first chief justice. But he's basically the author of New York's first state constitution. He's the first chief justice of New York's highest court. He represents America abroad, um, first in Spain during the revolution where he doesn't have much success. And then in France where he and Adams and Franklin have great success in negotiating the treaty that ends the war and establishes our boundaries. Then as soon as he kind of gets off the boat upon his return from France, he's tapped to be secretary for foreign affairs for the Confederation he's a leader of the movement to scrap the articles and create the constitution. So, although he's not a delegate in Philadelphia, he's, he he doesn't get a statue there at the national constitution center. I would argue that he's considerably more important than some of the lesser figures who do get statues, you know, who sort of showed up in Philadelphia and didn't do much. And then as Washington is forming the first federal government, you know, some people talk about Jay as Secretary of Treasury. Some people talk about him as, you know, Secretary of State. But in part to help Washington find useful jobs for his friends Jefferson and Hamilton, he says, "I know, I'd, I'd like to be Chief Justice." Um, and even that isn't the end of his career. He goes on as Chief Justice to negotiate Jay's treaty and goes on to be Governor of New York. So a lot to
1: research and write about it, it was was a fun process. Wonderful. Um, You raise a really interesting question. Why is it that Jay, well, he doesn't have a statute because he wasn't at the convention, but why is it that the three justices we're talking about tonight, Bushrod Washington, John Jay and James Wilson, who arguably had far more influence, as you say, on the constitution itself than some of the actual delegates are less well known? And we'll explore that in the course of the conversation. Neva Marcus, you've written about so many of the early justices, but I want to ask you about James Wilson. You have a great piece on Wilson as a justice. He was among the most important delegates to the convention, who came up with the idea that we, the people of the United States as a whole are sovereign, uh, and yet his influence on the court was less dramatic, among other things because of his debts, and and he had a dramatic personal end. I'll, I'll let you tell the story. Um, Why did you choose to write about Wilson, and what was he like as a justice?
4: I didn't write about Wilson. We have about three pages on James Wilson in our eight volumes, specifically on James Wilson. But he is a very interesting person. And uh, he came from Scotland in 1765 and then very quickly got involved in revolutionary activities in the 70s. He was very well educated. He had gone to St. Andrews in Scotland. Philosophy, history, political theory, and all of that showed throughout his career. Uh, He was never trained specifically as a lawyer, but he became, he, he read law, I think, with John Dickinson, but I'm trying to remember. I finished these volumes in 2006 and since then have been living in the 20th century. So it's hard to remember all of this. But I think uh, he certainly had a political theory when he was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention and was very important in that convention and in the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention where he easily convinced them uh, that they should vote for the Constitution. And he very much wanted to be Chief Justice. There is no question. And George Washington was a very shrewd (laughs) administrator and understood character and understood what was needed and believed that the judiciary needed to be developed into a third co-equal branch and that James Wilson was not the person to lead that branch because he was just too involved with his own problems. Western lands, he loved investing in Western lands and had huge amount of debt as a result of that and he also was not I would guess I wasn't there not an easy person to talk to or to actually uh, deal with the people because he was intellectually far superior uh, to all of them and so Washington chose Jay but Wilson was very good about this. He accepted the fact that he was not chosen Chief Justice, and he wanted to be an Associate Justice. And I would say he was one of the workhorses, along with James Iredell, of the early Supreme Court, because Wilson lived in Philadelphia, and the capital of the United States was Philadelphia. So the Supreme Court met in Philadelphia for those, for nine of the ten years, they met in New York the first year. And Wilson was always present when things happened and when things needed to be done in the Capitol or to take someone's place. And he was very, very good about doing circuit duty for other people when he could. Towards the end of his life, when his debtors started to chase him, the second you know, past 1795, 1796, he couldn't do it. He had to leave Philadelphia and go down south so that his creditors couldn't reach him. And he ended up, well, he had been in jail in New Jersey and his son sprang him loose. Uh, He's the only justice I know of who had ever been in jail. But it, it was a very, very sad story And he ended up in North Carolina with a relatively new wife. His first wife died in, I think, 1786. And James Wilson went on circuit in Boston, met this young lady. James Wilson was 50-something years old. And this young lady was 19. And he married her. And she did look after him for the rest of his life. And if anybody wants to read a lovely book about life in North Carolina at the very end or throughout uh, the years that Wilson was on the court, my colleague, Natalie Wexler, wrote a novel called A More Obedient Wife, and it's about the Wilsons and the Iredales. And I recommend it to everybody because it gives a very good picture of life in the 1790s. And I always worry that people who talk about this court have no idea what life was like and think of the Supreme Court of today and therefore cannot really assess the worth of that court because they are judging it from a different uh, standpoint. But uh, Wilson did not have the effect on jurisprudence, which you think he would have, Given his intellectual abilities, because he just didn't engage enough with the court when he started to get so involved with all of these personal problems, western lands, debts, etc. So he didn't leave much uh, in the way of jurisprudence that that we Uh, really use today. And in fact, nobody even thought about him. You know, he is one of the most important people at the Constitutional Convention. He was buried in North Carolina. And I think he wasn't brought back to Philadelphia till about a hundred years later when somebody remembered who he was and brought his body back to Philadelphia. (laughs) And so it's only lately that people have once again taken an interest in James Wilson, and they should take an interest in James Wilson, but for many reasons, not only as a justice.
1: Wonderful summary of the life of an unappreciated founder. Thank you for the recommendation of the book, um, The More Obedient Wife. And let's have book recommendations throughout the show. Paige Smith has a biography of Wilson that I've just been reading for Wilson's influence on the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, because his reflections on the extent of legislative authority in Britain uh, was one of the two documents that Thomas Jefferson had by his side when he wrote the declaration. And you're right about that amazing end of Wilson, where he's in the tavern with his young wife dying of malaria after he's been sued by his fellow Supreme Court Justice. Uh,
4: no, 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 no. Well, it's not a Supreme Court He He was sued it, by Pierce Butler, who was a senator, I think, in North uh, Carolina. I'll,
1: I'll, I'll take it from you. Take, but take he was, a look. He was sued, he was sued <laughs> by, I think, Butler, who I think sat on the court and dying of debt. He um, is convinced that he wants to defend his legacy. And he says, at least it should be said that I wasn't indolent, which is his defense of his remarkable conduct. But... I'll be interested about whether all of you think that it was his avarice and his overextension, which was so well noted, that's prevented us from properly appreciating his legacy. Gerard, you begin the book, Bushrod Washington, with a remarkable defense that Justice Washington makes of slavery. Uh, He's respected his uncle's wishes that General Washington, President Washington, free his own slaves, and yet Bushrod Washington uh, defends the institution of slavery tell us what his position was, and then relate that remarkable story to his relationship with John Marshall and and broadly his influence on the Marshall court. In
2: 1821, Bushrod, who has inherited Mount Vernon from his uncle, uh, gathers his enslaved people together and tells them that he will not be freeing them. The reason for this is because George had freed his enslaved people in his will, and so there was an expectation among the those who were enslaved there that Bushrod had brought to Mount Vernon after Martha Washington's death that they, too, would be freed. They also had a reason to believe that because Justice Washington was the head of the American Colonization Society, which was an, or- an organization that was dedicated to setting up the colony of Liberia and encouraging the emigration of free blacks to Africa, which meant to some degree that people would be freeing their enslaved people so that they could go to Liberia. Nevertheless, uh, Washington gathered them and said, look, I'm not going to do that. And in part, that was because he was struggling for money. Basically, Uh, he had inherited Mount Vernon, which was basically on the brink of, well, it was a money loser, let's say, and he didn't really have the means that George Washington had used to keep Mount Vernon going. And also Bushrod Washington was a lawyer and not a businessman of any skill. So he, he had a harder time with that. Anyway, um, so of course, eventually he sold some of his enslaved people in part to be able to pay debts and such. And this drew enormous criticism because, of course, one, he was a sitting Supreme Court justice, two, he was George Washington's nephew. How could he do such a thing? And he wrote a public letter, it, 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 kind of a defensive, slightly guilty letter in which he said, well, look, I tried hard not to break up people's families, and, but you don't understand all the problems that I have because of uh, the financial position that I'm in. It's definitely he you know he was George Washington's heir both in his in Washington's virtues and in his vices. His virtues were commitment to country, sober temperament, dedication to building up the institutions of the new United States. But the vices were slavery and of course he owned slaves all his life. George Washington had owned them all his life, so did John Marshall. And right? so the book tries to say that on one hand he was the inheritor and also the practitioner of this terrible legacy. On the other hand, he did write an opinion in Corfield versus Coriel that became for many people the foundation of the civil rights that the freed slaves should receive when the 14th Amendment was under discussion after the Civil War. So um, you see both the sort of at judicial legacy, which was much more sort of expansive or became so in terms of thinking about the rights of black people in contrast to his treatment of black people personally. Um, I should add that, of course, uh, part of the story of the book is that there was one enslaved person that he freed, only one, and that was West Ford, who was a Washington by blood, almost certainly. Now, whether he was Bushrod Washington's son or half-brother or nephew, we'll never know. But it's pretty certain that that he was one of them. And he's someone who lived at Mount Vernon as a free man for many years and indeed inherited land from Mount Vernon from Justice Washington. So that's all part of the story that I try to relay in the book, judicial, personal, and sort of institutional.
1: Fascinating. And as you note in the book, he studied with James Wilson as well, which was a connection between those two great founding fathers. Walter, tell us about Jay as chief justice. Uh, Adams says he'd long known and esteemed Wilson, but he prefers Jay. President Washington chooses Jay because he trusts him more than Wilson. And he's, he's so esteemed in all these ways. He didn't serve all that long, but what was he like as Chief Justice of the United States?
3: All of these early justices suffer in comparison with John Marshall. And, you know, there there really aren't many cases from that period that are still cited today. I, I went and did some research to see if they'd been cited recently. And uh, the most important case, Georgia v. Chisholm. Chisholm um, v. Georgia. <laughs> sorry, Chisholm v. Georgia, yes. It has the dubious distinction of being overturned by a constitutional amendment almost immediately. And so, you know, it doesn't get cited much other than in cases about the 11th Amendment. It's sort of cited as part of the background. Um, uh, Justice Alito cited it recently in a dissent in terms of talking about the, uh, you know, the the reason why federal courts were necessary to provide a a neutral forum um, for interstate disputes. And then, as you alluded to, he decamps after not very long. In 1794, there's an imminent war with uh, Great Britain, and um, Washington and Hamilton ask him to go to England and try to negotiate a peace treaty. And he's not real enthused about that, but he agrees and goes. Um, you know, I was thinking about it in preparation for today. In a sense, he sets a precedent there that then gets followed various other times in our history. For example, in 1876, when the justices agree to help resolve the election dispute, or 1960s when Earl Warren agrees to supervise the Warren Commission. And then they also set an important precedent on the other side in the neutrality crisis, uh, Washington and Jefferson wanted the justices to answer a long list of kind of abstract questions. And there was a lot of precedent in English law for that. But Jay and the other justices, um, thinking about it, said, said no, um, that's not our job. We decide cases and controversies. So in a sense, he both helps establish kind of what the court will not do and what the court will do. And it's also incredibly important when you just think about if you've ever been involved in starting something from scratch. You know, Jay and the other justices are starting something from scratch. Um, and they do a pretty good job of that so that by the time John Marshall comes,
1: there's a functioning court for them to, um, to build upon. Mava, first of all, you, you have a bunch of uh, important corrections and you're absolutely right about Pierce Butler. I was confusing him with the yes, we, we, New Deal era we, 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 justice, who, who was in fact called Pierce Butler, but the Pierce Butler you were yeah. referring to was, as you say, a founding the father se- and U.S. Okay. senator. And we, it would be yeah. great for you to maybe give us a sense of that Chisholm and Georgia case, which Walter just mentioned. I, I, Why was it significant? Uh, Wilson played a part in it. And wasn't he, I, I, I asked uh, Akila Amar, our dear friend, I, I always uh, asked him, yeah. wasn't Wilson correct that the idea of state sovereign immunity was repudiated by the constitutional embrace of national sovereignty and, and in, th- in that sense wasn't the fact that the decision was overturned by the 11th Amendment, an unfortunate repudiation of Wilson's vision.
4: Well, Jeffrey, I agree with you. Uh, Wilson and his colleagues were absolutely correct. And even Iradell, who is always said to be a dissenter, was not dissenting on the question of whether a state could be sued, he was dissenting on a procedural question whether Congress should say something first to set the procedure for suing a state. How do you do it? Who do you sue? Do you sue the governor? Do you sue the secretary? You know, whoever is an official of the state. That's what Iredell was upset about. But Chisholm v. Georgia was decided in favor of the national government Georgia could be sued in a federal court. And they all agreed on that. And then you get this whole business as the profound shock. It was overturned immediately. It wasn't. That's why I wanted to tell you. Somebody sent a form of the 11th Amendment to Congress. Now remember, Congress was not in session all the time. So yes, it takes time. But Congress tabled it. They did nothing about it. So that gave the opponents of suing states time to get together uh, and bring it to Congress once again. But by this time, instead of having the amendment say, you can't sue a state in federal court, it's the current form of the amendment shall not be construed and that gives judges leeway to do many things as 200 years of 11th Amendment litigation. We'll show you, and I can't talk about all of that. But the interesting part is the states took their time to approve the amendment. The requisite number of states finally did it in 1795. But no one knew about it. Remember, we didn't have newspapers and TV. These states were along the seaboard, and they did what they wanted, and nobody knew anything. And so states continued to be sued in the Supreme Court till 1798. And what is interesting about Chisholm is that Georgia, which refused to appear at first in the case of Chisholm v. Georgia because it said it couldn't be sued... What the Supreme Court did after saying yes, the 93 case said, yes, you can be sued. They issued the following year a default judgment against Georgia, saying you didn't appear, you owe Mr. Chisholm X amount of money, pay up. Well, Georgia paid up. That's what I want you to know. They followed this. I mean, states were... Worried. I mean, they understood what the Constitution said about a national government, and they didn't want judgments outstanding. New York paid a judgment during this time that the Supreme Court issued in Oswald v. New York. So you have to go into this in a very big way without just saying, ah, states can't be sued. I agree with you entirely. Under the original Constitution, states could be sued. And now we have, you know, all this litigation showing in which circumstances states can be sued, which officials, how to get around it, all of that kind of thing. Right after the amendment was made known in 1798 and was only made known because John Adams said to his secretary of state, whatever happened to that amendment? And so he wrote to all the state officials. And by that time, there were more states in the union. So one more state had to approve the amendment before it could become part of the Constitution. But that's the story of the 11th Amendment and Chisholm. But I I sort of would also like to say something as, as about Jay as Chief Justice, because I agree with Walter entirely that you have to look at this as an institution that is beginning, and believe me, they all understood that everything they did, as George Washington understood in terms of the executive, was going to be a precedent. And John Jay was very concerned with ethics. You know, they wrote circuit, which people won't know about <laughs> today, but they also served as judges of the circuit courts, which was a sort of intermediate tier, but it was a, they were trial courts. But they went to different parts of the United States, and Jay would not allow the justices to stay with friends when they were in different cities, states, towns, because he did not like the appearance of any favoritism or knowing people. He was very, very careful about that kind of thing. The other thing he was careful about, which is very interesting, I think, is prayer. John Jay did not believe, uh, and Walter, you can tell me uh, right or wrong, in prayer before government meetings. He did not believe that prayer should be part of the government. The court, the Supreme Court, did not begin with a prayer. The circuit courts did not begin with a prayer, except for New England, And Jay was present, but it was the first year or two that this happened, and they didn't want to antagonize the citizens, (laughs) who all came to hear court cases. It was kind of entertainment at the time. And so in New England, somebody was allowed to, quote, address the throne of grace before the court session began, but Jay was dead set against it.
1: Fascinating. Thanks very much for that really interesting institutional background and a reminder of of Jay's vision of ethics uh, for the court. Gerard, I I don't want to leave Bushrod Washington without getting a sense of his constitutional philosophy. He studied with James Wilson, who you, I think, persuasively argue is the most underappreciated founding father. He imbibed presumably from Wilson, this philosophy of natural law from the Scottish Enlightenment. He embodied it in this Corfield and Coriel decision, which must have been really interesting for you to write about because John Bingham, when he wrote the 14th Amendment, invoked Bushrod Washington's opinion in Corfield and Coriel as the central protection for rights of national citizenship. So just give us a sense of what Bushrod Washington and James Wilson's constitutional philosophy was and to what degree they were successful in in writing it into this case, Corfield and Coriel.
2: So Bushrod Washington was a federalist like Wilson and George Washington. Indeed, just talking about the 11th Amendment, Bushrod uh, called it a sacrifice to state pride. He, He wasn't a big fan because he was more interested in asserting national authority as a kind of important structural protection for liberty. Well, Bushrod Washington did study under James Wilson, you have to say that George Washington was probably a far more important influence on Bushrod simply by virtue of his family leadership, as well as just the fact of many years of kind of close interaction between them, correspondence uh, that really began when Bushrod was set up with James Wilson by George Washington. George Washington paid James Wilson's princely sum that uh, someone described it, that he demanded to be Bushrod's uh, mentor. But in other words, it's hard to imagine Bushrod Washington taking a much different philosophy toward the Constitution than George Washington, uh, or it would have taken someone of very incredible intellectual independence and fortitude maybe to do that. He then carried that onto the court, and in that sense, he was like-minded with John Marshall, who was also a Federalist. You know, when you come to a case like Corfield, The interesting thing to me about Corfield and the definition of fundamental rights that Bushrod Washington describes in Corfield, which is what makes it famous, is that it's the product of someone who was changing his mind about the case. So the most exciting thing I found when I researched this book was a secret journal that uh, was Bushrod uh, contained his notes from uh, many cases. It had been sitting in a museum in Chicago for decades and no one had really paid any attention to it. And I was there, I turned the page and what did I see in front of me? Corfield versus Coriel, right? And then the notes began and that's as close as I ever am going to get to hitting a jackpot, I think, for for anything. And what you learn there is that one of the reasons he decided to explain why he thought certain rights were fundamental under the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Constitution is that the claim in the case was that harvesting oysters in New Jersey waters if you lived in Pennsylvania was a fundamental right and he had a hard time thinking that through because he said to himself in his notes you can see him writing out well if you can use the waters to travel and anybody has the right to do that why can't you also take oysters out of them right what's the difference so he ended up concluding that okay they are different But to explain or defend that, he then went on to articulate, well, here are things that are fundamental rights as opposed to, say, harvesting oysters in another state's water. So I think that's an example of how you get a major change in constitutional law or statement about constitutional principle because you have doubts and you're not certain about what the answer should be. And I think he carried that through in other aspects of his judicial career you know uh, one thing when he would hold jury trials or um write opinions especially as a circuit judge he would often say yeah i'm not sure if i'm right I- i've done the best i can this is the conclusion i've come to but maybe i'm wrong you know uh, the, and and you don't really hear any people saying that nowadays i mean uh, really anywhere in the judiciary i think it's kind of a refreshing thing and and reflects kind of well on his sort of sensibility as a judge that he probably, you know, carried over. Perhaps he carried it over from Wilson, I can't say.
1: Completely fascinating. What a wonderful discovery of Bushard Washington changing his mind. And you really have emphasized the importance of Corfield and Coriel. So I'm going to read the central paragraph that was quoted so often during the debates over the Fourteenth Amendment, as you describe in your book on John Bingham, James Madison on the Fourteenth Amendment. And then in a moment, I'm going to ask you, Walter, what the influence of this decision was on Chief Justice Chase during the Civil War. So Bushrod Washington says in 1823, uh, we feel no hesitation in confining these expressions to privileges and immunities, which are in their nature fundamental, which belong of right to the citizens of all free governments, What these fundamental principles are, it would perhaps be more tedious than difficult to enumerate. They may, however, and this is the sentence that was always quoted, be comprehended under the following general heads, protection by the government, the enjoyment of life and liberty with the right to acquire and possess property of every kind, and to pursue and obtain happiness and safety, subject nevertheless to such restraints as the government may justly prescribe for the general good as a whole. I'm... I'm, i um, speaking with excitement here because I'd forgotten, because I haven't read this clause for a bit, that the right to pursue happiness and safety is itself considered a privilege or immunity of citizenship and a natural right connecting Corfield to the natural law philosophy of the declaration. Amazing. So uh, Walter Chief Justice Chase, how important was Coriel to him? Well, even
3: but before he becomes justice, um, You know, Chase has a long career as what we would call a pro bono civil rights lawyer uh, before the Civil War. I can't say, oh, he cited it in that brief or that brief because we don't have a lot of his briefs, but he was familiar with the case. And he was was um, in in arguing for uh, black rights, both in courts and in political fora before. the Corfield comes up most notably in the slaughterhouse cases um, decided near the end of Chase's tenure on the court in 1873. I mean, everyone, both the majority opinion and the, the three dissents in that case, cites Corfield. I mean, it's 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 seen as kind of the the paradigmatic statement of what privileges and immunities mean. Now, it it's in a different bit of the Constitution when Justice Washington was interpreting and it, it was in the original Constitution. Now it's in the Fourteenth Amendment, but people think that that is what it means. They just disagree violently over the majority in Slaughterhouse basically kind of reads privileges and immunities very narrowly and says, "Look, oh, it's just these few federal things." Whereas Chief Justice Chase and um, the other dissenters think that it is, is considerably broader and and reaches in particular the rights of the the butchers in New Orleans who wanted to pursue their trade without submitting to the state-imposed monopoly. I should note that Chase himself does not write an opinion. He just joins that of field. By this time, his health is not good. And indeed, within a couple of weeks after that decision is announced, he'll be dead of a stroke.
1: Wow. Remarkable and so important to emphasize the disagreement about the scope of the privileges or immunities clause and the meaning of Coriel and Slaughterhouse. I won't geek out too much by summarizing the debate for our friends except to say it's a central question in constitutional law. As uh, Walter said, the majority in Slaughterhouse basically read the Privileges or Immunities Clause as if it only protected rights that were pre-existing in the federal constitution. Whereas the dissenters said, no, it includes all of these natural rights that were recognized in Slaughterhouse and in that sense basically applied the Bill of Rights against the states because the right to make and enforce contracts to sue and be sued and to uh, engage in rights that are fundamental between state to state is protected by privileges or immunities. As your Please. friend Professor
3: Amar has noted, almost all legal scholars today, left, right, and center, agree with the dissenters and not the majority in Slaughterhouse.
1: That's a crucial question. Even Robert Bork and others recognize that everyone agrees um, essentially that Slaughterhouse was wrong. And there's some vigorous attempts to get the Supreme Court to. Uh, Overturn it, Justice Thomas has expressed uh, some mild interest, but suggested it might be too late, and it's one of those cases where the original understanding is clearly inconsistent with the majority decision. Mava, I'll let you talk about the significance of Corfield in whatever way you think best, but I I have to ask you, because I was so excited to remember the pursuit of happiness language in in Corfield, and then I, I found it in Slaughterhouse as well, where the decision says that the Fourteenth Amendment places under the guardianship of the national government a protection against monopolies, which are invasion of privileges which encroach on liberty of citizens to acquire property and pursue happiness, and were voided common law. Do you have any thoughts about whether this idea that pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety was a natural right was embraced at all on the early Supreme Court? No,
4: they they did not litigate anything like this throughout the t- the only mention of it was in Calder v. Bull, where there was a disagreement, and not specifically the pursuit of happiness, but whether natural law or things that were positive law, things that were specified, uh, should take precedence in dealing with a particular problem. That's the only time I've ever seen it mentioned. I think the early court was involved with things like judicial review. How about that? (laughs) That was important in the first decade. And even though John Marshall gets all the credit because he wrote it down, it was James Wilson who was the first to exercise it. It was in Philadelphia. It was in a ridiculous-sounding case, uh, a Revolutionary War veteran who was disabled and wanted his pension. And there was a statute that allowed him to go to court and ask for his pension. And he did this in Philadelphia. And Wilson absolutely refused to hear it. He said, this is not something the judiciary does. And all the justices wrote to President Washington and said, You can't ask us to listen to these veterans and say whether these veterans should get a pension because that's not a judicial task and it is unconstitutional. But these were all advisory opinions. They were in letters to the president. Wilson was the only one who did it officially in the courtroom, said, I'm not considering this case. That's the end of it. And then the case came before the Supreme Court because the Attorney General, Edmund Randolph, just went to court and said, you have to order that court in Philadelphia, the circuit court, to listen to this veteran. And if you look at Dallas, Dallas's reports, there's a paragraph about how the Supreme Court divided on a procedural vote. It was 3-3. Three, three. There were six justices in the first court. And it has been assumed from that point that the question was, could the attorney general come into court and ask the court to order another court when there was no client? There was no nobody, you know, it wasn't an adversarial thing. He just, it was what they do in England. It was what they did in Virginia, You go to court and you ask them to do something, and it's been assumed that the court said, no, in the United States, we have the adversarial system, plaintiff, defendant, and that is not true. Because it turns out that the question was simply, could the attorney general do this without first seeking the permission of the president? That was the question. And that's what they divided on. But nobody knew that till we found the letters that told us that a few years ago. But as many justices say, we are not going to go back and change this. David Shapiro loved it, put it in his heart and Wexler. But, you know, we're, we're not going to overturn this. It looks like the adversarial system was inevitable. It wasn't. But also, that was the beginning of judicial review. And eventually the court just didn't decide the case because they didn't want to step on Congress's toes. I mean, they say that, we'll wait, we'll put it off another, and they only met in February and August, and usually for a few days to a few weeks at the most. And by the time they met, Congress changed the law and did what the judges wanted. And so judicial review was accepted. And then the Supreme Court in 1796 considered a case called Hilton v. United States, which considered the constitutionality of the carriage tax case. It was a case that put taxes on carriages. But what's interesting about the case is that both the opponents of the tax, Madison, and the proponents, Hamilton and other people, they both wanted the Supreme Court to make a decision one way or the other, which means the Supreme Court had the power of judicial review, and everyone recognized it in 1796.
1: Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed for that, and that story of the history of judicial review is central. Um, Lots of great questions in the Q&A box. This is, I think, going to be our final round, so I'll ask each panelist to take up whatever questions they feel best. I can't resist answering Barry Beeth, how did early courts define the right to pursue happiness? It's interesting that in the Slaughterhouse case, Justice Fields' dissent cites Blackstone and says, that only is a free government in the American sense of the term under which the inalienable right of every citizen to pursue his happiness is unrestrained except by just, equal, and impartial laws and he says that that's the definition of civil liberty, the great end of all human society is that state in which each individual has the power to pursue his own happiness according to the dictates of his interest unrestrained except by equal just and impartial laws. And that citation is to Blackstone who also uses the phrase pursuing your true and substantial happiness. So it was essentially pursuing the ordinary occupations of life, pursuing your calling on equal terms with other citizens was the legal definition. And then we have a great question about what we think about the portrayal of james wilson in the musical 1776 and i'll let anyone else uh, weigh in but it was a, a libel completely unfair that he was made to be such an anxious buffoon because we know that in fact he was the most well educated certainly and perhaps the most brilliant of all the founders and it was only because of his unfortunate avarice and death that he's been forgotten in history but we're giving him some love tonight Uh, Gerard, final thoughts on Bushrod Washington, his significance, and what do you want our friends to remember him for?
2: Well, I think there wouldn't have been a Marshall court without Bushrod Washington. No chief justice can do it all himself, asked John Roberts. And uh, John Marshall, though, is given this extraordinary credit as if he did everything On the Marshall Court, and everyone else on that court was just sort of not doing very much at all. Now, some of that was because of the way they structured their opinions in having them almost always be written or in the name of the Chief Justice. But when you look at sort of behind the scenes to the extent that we can at the letters and other things that were exchanged among the justices and especially between Washington and Marshall, you see that. Washington was very important. And Marshall said as much many times that he really relied on Washington as a collaborator and a partner on all sorts of projects, including the book that they wrote about George, that that Marshall wrote about George Washington, where Bushrod was his editor. And so, you know, the opinions of the Marshall court really should be seen as the products of a team and the and a collective effort, you know, law is a collective enterprise. No one person can sort of make the law in a democracy anyway. And so I think Bushrod is an important figure because of his relationship with Marshall. And that's what I hope people take away from the book.
1: Wonderful. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Walter, uh, what takeaway should we have on Chief Justice Jay? There are some questions about him, including what changed uh, SCOTUS from an itinerant job under Jay into a true Supreme Court under Marshall. Uh, Jonathan Parts asks that Jay's sending a memorandum refusing to give advisory opinions before he went to England to negotiate. These are your final thoughts. So I'll let you leave us with whatever you think is most relevant.
3: Well, on, on the itinerant court, I mean, in a sense, the court is still itinerant through, you know, for a long, long time. I mean, Jay would have been very happy um, and I think indeed all the members of the early court would have been very happy if if the, you know, that lovely Supreme Court building, which we now know had been built in, oh, say, 1790, and they could have just parked themselves there and and kind of had a life akin to the current justices. But but really, I don't know, nine-tenths of their work was out on the circuits. And that's still the case when you get to my more recent subject, Salmon and Chase, and some of his most important decisions as Chief Justice are his circuit decisions um, in Virginia and Maryland and elsewhere. Jay is important as Chief Justice, but really it's the whole life that, if he had only been Chief Justice, it would not have been worth my while to write a book and it would not be worth people's while to read the book. But you're gonna get all the way from the Stamp Act through the Marshall Court is gonna, you know, Jay is alive and and involved in. So it's an amazing story, if I do say so myself. (laughs)
1: Well, you made, you made a great case for it in, in your wonderful book, and that's a really important point that for many of these uh, people we're talking about, and certainly for Jay and, and for Wilson too. If he'd just been on the court, not worth uh, necessarily re- reading about, but when you look at the life and context among the towering founding fathers. Mave, the last word in this wonderful discussion is to you, and among other things, uh, Mary Talsky asks, any recommendations on materials high school students might manage on the early courts? well on on my court
4: not much uh, so um i do have a book that i edited recently called with liberty and justice for all question mark the constitution in the classroom and i recommend that it's it was supposed to be published april 6th now it's may 22nd but it has lots of primary sources in it and a wonderful essay by mary builder on the constitutional period and the the early court, so I would recommend that uh, to her. Uh, From my point of view, the early court is really important. You mentioned advisory opinions, and of course, we have the famous letter from the court that says, separation of powers, courts can't give advisory opinions. However, Chief Justice Jay talked to President Washington before they ever decided that. Chief Justice Jay wrote a draft of a neutrality proclamation. He was the one who advised them, first, let the president issue a proclamation, then let Congress pass the Neutrality Act, and then the court, which has all of these cases in the pipeline, can come up and do exactly the same thing and say exactly the same thing, but as judges in a case, and that will make us look much stronger to the European nations. And that was very important to them then, and it worked out that way, and in the the case that they did, Glass v. Sloot Betsy, it brings up another point, Marshall and the opinion of the court. The fact of the matter is the early Supreme Court understood that too. In that opinion in 1794, they kept saying, and the court says, it wasn't by one person, it was an opinion, it was a decree of the court, and it had four paragraphs and every paragraph said, and the court says. And later in the decade, Chief Justice Ellsworth always had things that said, by the court. The opinion of the court, was born in the first decade, not during the Marshall era. People should
1: really know things like that. Wonderful. <laughs> they should indeed. And you, and thank you for helping all of us know that. Thank you, Neva Marcus, uh, Walter Starr, and Gerard Malioka for an engaging discussion on this really important and much too little understood period of the early court. You've inspired all of us to learn more. And we'll look forward to learning more with all of you. Uh, Gerard, Walter, Maybach, thank you so much for joining. And thank you, friends, for taking an hour to learn and grow together.
0: This episode was produced by Melody Rowell, Lana Ulrich, John Guerra, and me, Taneya Tauber. It was engineered by Dave Stotts. Visit constitutioncenter.org to see a list of resources mentioned throughout this episode, find the full lineup of our upcoming shows, and register to join us virtually. You can join us via Zoom, watch our live YouTube stream, or watch a recorded videos after the fact in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. If you like the show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or by following us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.